Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. Politics is showbiz for ugly people, goes the cruel joke. And while I would never dream of insulting the beautiful people of Westminster, I've been wondering if the showbiz part, at least, is kind of true. If you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll probably remember that I interviewed Laura Koonsberg a few months ago, and I asked her, among other things, about a particularly controversial, sarcastic guest she'd had on her new show. Mm, I wonder who. And on the same day it came out, I got a DM, a direct message, on Twitter from the man of the moment. Is it me? (laughs) (laughs) And you said, lovely podcast with Laura Kay. Thank you for keeping my chair warm before the first show because, of course, I did the rehearsal Mm. and sat in the chair that you had sat in. Clearly didn't help Laura prepare. No. So very different styles. We should have spoken beforehand. (laughs) We should debrief. So, in case you missed the show, the controversy, the Twitter storm, the Daily Mail front page and the comments in Parliament that followed, let me quickly remind you. Joe Lycett, a famous comedian, was invited to be a panellist on Laura Koonsberg's new show in the big Sunday morning politics slot on the BBC. It was the weekend before Liz Truss was going to be announced as our new Prime Minister. She was interviewed on the show and at the end of it... He did this. Whatever happens, do come back. Well, I was going to say, going for some reaction from our panel, because listening to that interview at the desk and seeming to applaud Joe Lysett, the comedian. Then he was invited to give his analysis of that interview with the next Prime Minister. Tell us honestly what you thought. I'm actually very right-wing and I loved it. I thought she was very clear. She gave great, clear answers. It annoyed a lot of people, including notable TV producers on Twitter and MPs in Parliament. He was asked on as a pundit. He did this mock applause after Liz Truss left the interview chair, was then immediately asked for his reaction, and he said she was the dregs of what they've got available and the backwash of the available MPs. Here was Owen Jones, the left-wing writer and commentator. The pearl clutching began immediately. Political commentators go, oh God, why is he being funny and silly? The sanctity of Sunday morning political discussion has been destroyed. You're reassured, I'm reassured. Are you reassured? So when Joe Lysett said he'd come on the podcast, I knew exactly what kind of Westminster Insider episode I wanted to make. Not about comedy, but punditry. 
and the art of political commentating. His brief turn as a sort of satirical, terribly right-wing pundit got a lot of people thinking and arguing about political commentators in general and whether they actually add value. So for this week's episode, I wanted to look at exactly that, the whole world of commentating and punditry in British politics. Pundits are incredibly useful because they fundamentally act as a sort of bridge between the politicians and the the viewer. It's SW1 speaking to itself, and it's very self-referential. I don't think political punditry, and of course, I do have skin in the game here, but I don't think it's intrinsically bad or good. I loved Joe Lysette's appearance on that show. I thought he did a brilliant job. Well, I think it's a good idea for a podcast. From Politico, I'm Alva Ray, and this week on Westminster Insider, I and, yep, Joe Lysett, I'm taking you inside the world of political commentating, showing you how it works and asking if there's any point at all in listening to what the pundits, we pundits, have to say. Good morning, Britain. Politics Live. Question Time. Peston. Newsnight. The Andrew Neil Show. Sunday with Laura Coonsberg. Paper Reviews. Sky News. Times Radio. LBC. GB News Talk TV. Podcasts. YouTube. More news programs. Chat, chat, chat. Chat, chat, chat. There's a lot of political punditry around, and a lot of it of highly varying quality. If this exit poll is right, Andrew, I will publicly eat my hat on your programme. You know the format. A couple of people, maybe even three or four, carefully picked for their opposing views, going at it hammer and tongs over some political topic or another. His mates in the city farted, Nigel Farage is pointing at immigrants and the disabled and holding his nose. The format has been around forever, right? Well, no, actually. At least, not if a new play currently showing in the West End is to be believed. Best of Enemies is the latest play by James Graham, who we had on the show a couple of weeks ago, and who's so insightful, we got him back on today. Best of Enemies is a play that's running in the West End at the moment, but it's actually based on a, a documentary, and it looks at the change to American television news during the 1968 presidential election and particularly how different networks covered the conventions, the Democrats in Chicago and the Republicans in Miami Beach, ABC, the third network in America. Basically, they had no money and so they had to come up with an original idea to cover the election and the conventions in particular. We would like to call on our guest controversialists. That's a term the BBC in London invented and it's good. And so they came up with this idea of having a nightly newscast where they would invite celebrities, basically pundits, to come and speak uh, and commentate and give opinions about what was happening in the news. And that had never really been done before. You had these, these gatekeepers like Walter Cronkite, the newsmen who would deliver you the facts. And here were two people who weren't newscasters. They were Gore Vidal, the Liberal on the left, who was pitted against uh, William F. Buckley, the Conservative on the right. And it got very uh, interesting and so interesting, in fact, that I think it did actually change the discourse for the future we're living in now. I know that you revel in that kind of inequality. I think it's sort of because business is based upon it. You see, I believe that freedom breeds inequality. 
Uh, and that, say that again. Uh, 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 freedom breeds inequality. Now, say that uh, a third uh, time. No, twice yeah, is no, enough. No, I think you made your point. And do you think that then it travelled across the UK, that it's bled into our political culture? That culture of, of pitting someone from this side of the argument and someone from that side of the argument, pro versus con, has definitely, I think, travelled across here. Because the end of the story, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that at the end of the play, um, what was meant to, a, a sincere attempt, I think, by the producers and certainly by Vidal and Buckley to elevate the conversation, to talk with great articulation and honesty and depth about the great issues of the day. It unfortunately, because they're human and human beings are flawed, it descended into a real slanging match and got very personal to the point where famously some slurs were screamed at each other uh, between them live on air. Now listen, you the right of stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling I'll names you in your get... goddamn face and let's... you'll stay plastered. And unfortunately, for better or worse, the network um, won the ratings war. The ratings went through the roof. And even though it was probably a moral failure, it was a rating success. And since that moment, all the other networks, uh, NBC and CBS they began aping that model of getting pundits uh, on screen, firing them up and getting them arguing. And I think the real legacy of that, and again, for better or for worse, is turning what had been pretty dry, fact-based analysis uh, into debate as, as argument, as combative, as trying to get one up, to own, to gotcha, to destroy your opponent live on air. It became a familiar format to have journalists or other commentators, rather than just politicians, giving their view on shows like Question Time, which began in the UK in 1979. Good evening and welcome to Question Time. But it was the advent of 24-hour news, more channels, more radio stations, more choice and more time to fill, mixed with opinion everywhere on the internet, that saw the boom in this kind of content that we have today. Pop out of Parliament, through security, out onto the street. Take a left, past the roar of protesters, the traffic, maybe even the odd ageing politician. You're walking along Millbank. And yes, that inconspicuous building on the corner is the one you're looking for. Go through the revolving doors, up the marble steps with the nice carpet, and tell reception your name. You're here, just five minutes from Parliament, in the hub of political broadcasting in the UK. If you're a political pundit, then this is your spiritual home. So we're in Four Millbank, and in the middle of Four Millbank, there's a, a, a space people kind of call the atrium. This is Rob Burley in the echoey atrium of Four Millbank. He'll explain who he is in a second. It really is the place where if people are on some of the political programmes, perhaps on Politics Live in the BBC, or they're attending at LBC, the Andrew Marshall, or they're going to do Sky, they may come down here for a coffee uh, before they do to prepare to get themselves ready for it. So I've spent most of my, my career, not most, but half of it, working somewhere around this building. Broadcasters have their own big studios elsewhere, of course. At Broadcasting House near Oxford Circus for the BBC, Television Centre at White City for ITV, and way out near Heathrow for Sky. But across several floors in Millbank, they all have their Westminster hubs here, as well as Channel 4, LBC and many others. Politicians and journalists pop back and forth from Parliament to here all day long. And as Westminster Insider listeners, you've probably watched thousands of hours broadcast from here. But I'll let Rob introduce himself now. 
My name's Rob Burley. I've been working in political television, a bit of radio, but mainly television for the last 26 years or so. Rob is the editor of Beth Rigby's big new interview show on Sky News, but he's worked all over, most famously as editor of The Andrew Marr Show and then later as head of political programmes at the BBC. I devised Politics Live, which is still going, so whenever that's on the telly, I find that a bit weird. It's like my little baby, it's still out there in the world. His fingerprints are all over British political broadcasting. It makes it sound like a crime. (laughs) Rob is probably the most famous politics producer in the UK. And he just happens to have been one of the most vocal critics of Joe Lycett's turn on Laura Koonsberg. I don't think he was the right person to have in the room when you know you're going to interview the person who's about to be the Prime Minister in the middle of an economic crisis. That's my point, right? I, I, I want his illumination and analysis and grown-up behaviour. It's not because I haven't got a sense of humour or because I don't get the why people find it genius, you know. I just, it's just not the moment for it. We had an economic policy that was not... That there was no consent for, that was radical, that was disastrous, as it turned out. And she was already hinting on that programme what it was. And so it would have been really useful for, for viewers to have some analysis that pointed them in the direction of, 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 you know, frankly, the shit show that was about to come. I put it to Rob that a lot of the people who enjoyed Joe Lycett's turn as a pundit said that he'd exposed how shallow a lot of punditry really is. Or by being shallow and vacuous. I mean, I just, I just think it's nonsense. I mean, it just, it's about who you select. So are, you, are they really saying that all punditry or all ex- expertise is kind of inherently valueless? Surely we just choose the right people who can illuminate what we're doing talking about. I just find that inexplicable, to be honest. Whether you think Joe Lycett's turn on Laura Kay worked or not, producers all say that they really do need pundits. And that's the fault, they would say, of the politicians. Political interviews, especially with, say, you know, front benches, have become increasingly opaque and a sort of, you know, a game of trying to say as little as you possibly can or not answering questions or going round in circles. This is Scarlett Maguire, the producer of The Andrew Neil Show on Channel 4. Like Rob and many politics producers, she's worked all over political television and radio, at the BBC, Channel 4, ITV and Times Radio. As you can probably hear, I caught up with her in the corner of one of Westminster's finest drinking establishments, the Blue Boar. Pundits are incredibly useful because they fundamentally act as a sort of bridge between the politicians and the the viewer and the public. And if anything, actually, um, a bit... I know you're talking to Joe Lycett, but I guess this may be part of the stuff he was parodying, but can sometimes feel like you don't know quite what the point of it is. And I think that, like, um, pundits, for me, again, whether you're looking for them to generate opinions or analysis or a mix of both, are a really good way of um, sort of mediating that and actually bringing a bit of sense and having a step back removed from just having to, you know, especially as we've seen when administrations start collapsing, like we've had recently with both of them, the, the, the lines become increasingly farcical that they're put out to say and don't hold, and sort of everyone knows that. So you really do need someone in the room to point that out. How do you decide who will be a good pundit? It depends what you're after. So when I was um, sort of 
first doing things, things like Radio 4, they would say, can you, you know, organise me a sort of Brexit disco? And what that would mean was you needed to find, very broadly speaking, a journalist who was pro-Brexit and a journalist who was anti-Brexit and put them on together to um, have opinions about Brexit and disagree with each other on air. Um, the purpose of it was not to have a heated disagreement by any means, but um, you would have to find people from both camps and actually you ended up doing that most days. You seem to forget there was a referendum and the British people voted to leave. You get cling to that, cling to that because you can't... Will, what do you mean cling to it? It's important. And you have other shows where if you have sort of, say, four panellists and you'd be looking to balance different things and so that can sometimes feel slightly... Um, silly if you've got it up on the whiteboard in front of you although obviously the sort of purposes behind it are very good i'll be looking to balance sort of uh various different things if you imagine sort of on a graph on axis so um sort of at that time brexit views uh political persuasion gender obviously diversity and also you wouldn't want everyone on the panel to be sort of old and boring i'm obsessed with this On shows like Politics Live, behind the scenes, there's a secret whiteboard, an actual physical graph where producers plot their potential guests. I'm desperate to see one of these things. They sound like the most absurd-sounding jigsaw puzzles imaginable. Basically, you have a whiteboard that sort of spreads out for weeks at a time, um, sort of maybe plotting the next day, like four weeks, and then you'd have be broken up into each day and then each day would be broken up into four um sort of four sections like four quadrants uh, and you'd be desperately trying to arrange a jigsaw puzzle so that you could say that there was and not just say i mean for the sake of good debate and sort of talk as well but you'd want them to be balanced and so i think quite often that means as well because mps you know are still predominantly male and sort of you know, of a certain type and um, certain background, that means that quite a lot of that difference then, I think, would come from, um, you know, young female, interesting journalists, which I think did help probably create quite a few of some of the more prominent commentators that we see today. It was partly because there was, even if it wasn't a literal grid on a literal whiteboard, some sort of, you know, metaphorical whiteboard that needed to be filled in. So there you go. My own fledgling career as a pundit may have started as the missing piece of a jigsaw in the basement of Four Mill Bank. Humbling, really. So you've got the text or the WhatsApp from a producer asking you to come on the show. You dash over to Millbank, or yes, sometimes they do send a car. You get to the studio, you get given your pass and shown to the green room. You take in that delicious, frosty tension between the lefty young Corbynite MP and the old Tory man. You go to makeup, get the gossip from the really nice makeup lady, and then you're shown into the dark room with the bright lights. You're mic'd up, you look at all the cameras and the auto cue, and the countdown to live begins. Everyone, even the most experienced presenters, take a deep breath. Sometimes it does feel like this really is showbiz for ugly people. And for certain pundits at least, the whole thing becomes a bit of a performance. I've worked on some things where pundits will come up to me before we go on air and um, say, uh, what, what do you want me to say on this debate? Because they are, I think, potentially you know, too aware that they have a particular 
role to fill and there's a reason why they're getting sort of paid and they because they're aware where they fall in that sort of meta you know metaphorical grid or whiteboard that I was sort of talking about earlier. One producer told me that they have a problem sometimes. Suddenly, mid-conversation, one of their pundits looks away from the other panellists, straight down the lens of the camera, and starts to deliver their planned, slightly scripted diatribe for a clip on social media. And other producers admit they love the drama. We love a fight, as the producer on another show told me. A big social media reaction to a certain clip can be an important way for pundits to get noticed and for producers to make the case to their bosses that a show should be recommissioned. So, on all sides, there's a bit of an incentive for heat, drama, conflict and entertainment. I think that's actually reasonably rare um, and I think that in most of the things that I've worked with, it's you know there's there's been a lot of talk about oh isn't everything now just about generating social media clips that will go viral and people you know fighting and getting that sort of artificially engineered on air and i i sort of don't really think that's the case i think it's still on on things i've worked worked on anyway and from um, my more limited experience it does seem to be that it's actually the insight that is being prioritized Certainly one of the main shows that occasionally enjoys a bit of a ding-dong is Politics Live, the BBC Two discussion programme created by Rob Burley. Well, they're not mutually exclusive, are they? I set it up to be good telly and to cover things seriously. And so we would have, you know, in TV terms, there's quite a lot, 10-minute sections on a range of very serious subjects were given serious consideration, as well as just the day-to-day politics. So there was no... There isn't, there, there you can do both things... So, yeah, I mean, it's great for, it's, it's, it's great that, that 30% more people were watching the show than were watching the predecessor show, but I just don't buy that it was in any way sort of dumbed down to bring them in, as it were. I just think it was like it was an entertaining watch about serious things. Because serious things are interesting. What I said was that every racist and anti-Semite in the country pretty much probably voted for Brexit. That's all. And how that do you know, that, how do you know mean... that in a secret ballot? I don't how know How do you it. possibly know that? I suspect it. Uh, and I it, think you should uh, apologise. To who? You could say this was heat rather than light, but I think in a way it was... I'm quite pleased with it. It was the famous moment with Will Self and Marc Francois. What became known as the stare-off, OK? Now, obviously, on one level, that's just really great television, right? Because people were having a genuine falling out and were very... There was a lot of tension in the situation, so that's why it was so explosive and, you know, seen so many times on social media, etc. You've basically tried to slur anybody who voted Leave as a bigot. And I think you should apologise. No, I haven't. I oh, said yeah. that's a problem. Listen, listen, Mark, Mark, what you said is everyone who is a racist voted leave. How could he know that? Well, that, that of course, it's is up for discussion. It's a secret ballot. No, How could he know? But for me, in a way, the interesting thing about it, and it wasn't, it wasn't sort of constructed to create a fight, but it was constructed, was I just thought it would be really interesting to have someone who was emblematic of the kind of remain metropolitan kind of commentary right sat next to someone who was the absolute opposite because there was, a culture, there was a cultural difference going on between people on the Brexit side and people on the Remain side that was really visceral. And while we weren't trying to manufacture what we got, I sort of thought it was real. You know, it, it wasn't fake. It was, an, it was a real 
flashpoint. The problem for nationalists generally is that they fall into the hands of what we call ethnic Absolutely nationalists. Ridiculous. All right, you mentioned Dominic you know, Raab earlier, and Absolutely on that we haven't got time to actually play the clip. Hang on, looking hang on. Everybody's let me when they voted. let me bring in let me bring in the two ladies. Hang on, uh, Grace. There is. I think we all remember the sight of those two middle-aged men engaging in a stare-off like a pair of teenagers live on national TV. I put it to Rob that he had kind of manufactured that raw in a sense by putting them together and letting the sparks fly. But that sounds more cynical or, or meant than it was. People imagine that we kind of, the puppet masters pulling these strings to kind of make them all have an argument. I and mean, it's not really like that. Yes, we want interesting combinations, but we don't want to, you know, I, I, I wouldn't want it to have happened on a regular basis. It happened once in however many hundreds of shows that it reached that point of intensity. But it, like I say, it reflected to me an argument that was really happening, that was really felt in the country. But what do the pundits themselves think of their role in all of this? And what about the most controversial pundit of all, Joe Lysett? Stay with us. Is it an advert for Qatar? <laughs> Just checking. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. As someone still quite new to this, I'm still struck by the slightly absurd privilege of being asked to go on TV or radio and give my view. Let's first go to Alva. Alva Ray. Alva Ray. Alva, your reaction to that? Well, why do I get to do this and not my mum or my neighbour? Especially in some cases when I'm not even being asked about politics. Which one Christmas song could you happily go the entire month without hearing at all? Oh, oh I think that's quite a bad humbug question. What's your favourite one? I would have a short list of about ten. You're being a politician and answering the question that I haven't <laughs> asked you. Even before Joe Lysett prompted this recent bout of introspection in the commentariat, I would think quite a bit about the point of being a pundit and how I would try to add value to a TV or radio show. I don't share my political views, I'm not a player in the political debate, 
So the way I try to add value is to make sure I've had the chats with the MPs that I can add an honest, colourful picture of what's happening off camera in Westminster. And a lot of my thinking on that is shaped by friends and colleagues who are a lot more experienced than I am at the art of being a commentator. I'm Stephen Bush. I am Associate Editor at the FT, uh, where I write a column. And before that, I was your boss. Never uh, heard of you. <laughs> he, he makes things up all the time. Um, I'm Katie Balls. I am Deputy Political Editor at The Spectator. And I've got you here together in the Westminster Insider Bunker uh, because you're a a familiar, should we say, TV couple, punditry couple, uh, a familiar pairing on on the airwaves. Yeah, although I'd like to make it clear, not actually a couple. Um, (laughs) I don't think anyone thought we were a couple, but thank you for clarifying that. People have in the past believed we were a couple. Oh Yeah, we were once at an event together and I was mistaken for Stephen's wife and Stephen was actually almost um, too mortified. But you're the ideal pairing to speak to about political commentating because both of you together sometimes and then very often individually are called upon to give your wisdom on the airwaves. Can I just begin by asking you, you know, with with all of that right after Joe Lysett and there are people like Owen Jones who were saying, well, this just, you know, it just shows the inanity of what a lot of people on that kind of show say. Um, that would include all of us. I suppose would also that, include that Owen Jones, right? I mean, is, is he going to give all that money to Jeremy Vine back? Like, <laughs> I think you get good articles and you get bad articles and you get good books and you get bad books and therefore you will have some appearances by journalists talking about politics that will be really engaging and insightful. But of course, there are going to be some which don't achieve that. I don't think political punditry, and of course, I do have skin in the game here. (laughs) I don't think it's, you know, intrinsically bad or good. And I think when done right, it can actually add a lot to a discussion. And on an interview show, I think it can be a really useful tool to cast some light, which the politicians are not going to tell you because they are two-party aligned. I loved Joe Lysette's appearance on that show. I thought he did a brilliant job, both of getting over the key messages about uh, Liz Truss's interview, which was that it offered no certainty to households. The only way you could possibly think it was a good interview would be if you were, you know, so deep in the tank for the Conservative Party that you, you know, must have needed a scuba helmet to survive. Um, While showing his own abilities as a comedian, but he actually was saying something deep and meaningful uh, than engage with what had been said. When punditry is bad is when you have two people who visibly... Yeah, there's an old Not the Kind of Cock News sketch where they're arguing and midway through one of the politicians dies. And the person who'd been shouting at him just goes, this is the kind of politician, the kind of politician who will be greatly missed. Uh, and it's a problem when you have that type of sort of very rote, we all know what people are going to say. But when it works, um, as I think... It does mostly work when um, when Katie and I are, are are on together or separately. It's when you're you're adding a sort of depth and context to to why politicians do things. As with sports punditry, right? There's a lot of very bad sports punditry. Um. Uh, but but when it when it's done well, it really does illuminate things. So how do Katie and Stephen try to add value as pundits? I think when it works well is when you say things that a politician is not going to say. I think the point as a journalist is to speak fairly freely um, about what you think the real truth of a situation is. 
I think I remember once doing the Andrew Marr paper review. It was three of us on a sofa and there was a front page of Boris Johnson, I think when he said he was going to be like the incredible Hulk sometimes during sometime during the Brexit era. And the the two pundits either side of me were all having a bit of a debate about, you know, whether Boris Johnson was right on this. And then I think to cut through the noise a bit, but well, I stepped in and said, well, this is a classic Boris Johnson manoeuvre. He has effectively confected a row um, by using some colourful phrasing. And we're all bickering about that rather than like the actual detail of his policy. And I think something like that, um, where you were almost bringing the focus back and perhaps seeing through some of the spin is what is good for a journalist to be doing in punditry. A couple of weeks ago, I did any questions. Um, and on the train down, I'm kind of looking over, like, what are the big things which come up? And the thing I kind of know is going to happen is that the Labour politician will understandably want to go, this is a problem that's been going for 12 years. The Conservative politician will either be going, well, this is a problem that we're fixing, or this is a problem which is longer than 12 years. And... I'm not saying that I'm infallible, but the thing that I think we ought to be aiming to do exactly is to be the person who goes, well, that problem actually is a problem of the Conservative Party, but that problem is actually a problem of the last 20 years. That problem was actually much worse under Labour and has got better. That problem was fixed under Labour and has returned, right? Uh, and, you're, and, and, all, and you're providing the sort of the stuff that people tell you privately that the audience at home wouldn't necessarily know and you're providing, hopefully, depth. A lot of the problems with these programs are problems of producers making bad decisions like it's not like we sit there going oh god i I never knew that that think tank was a wholly owned subsidiary of that political party or oh gosh i never knew that so and so was profiling for a seat in fact lots of producers like that because they like the certainty i think one of the things immodestly that viewers really like about katie and i because people you know they come up to me in the supermarket and they go like they're like, are you that guy who knows Katie Balls? And I'm just like, <laughs> I'm an associate editor of the Financial Times, goddammit. But, um, but you know, I think one of the things that, that audiences like about us is not they don't know what we're going to say. But I think one of the things that producers often prefer is they prefer to be like, oh, I'm going to have this person who's basically the equivalent of having another conservative minister on versus this person who, you know, essentially, you know, a Keir Starmer glove puppet. And that doesn't illuminate the public and is a bad use of, of punditry. And, and look, we are, we're talking about probably more insight analysis um, when it comes to what we'd be doing on a paper review or talking about a political situation. I think there probably is a market for what Stephen's talking about, which is more get two people who completely disagree and almost just let them go at it. And they're two quite different things. And I think that sometimes it's a bit... I personally like watching people when I don't know what... Perhaps I can predict what they're going to say 75% of the time, but I watch it for the 25% when I when I don't know what they're going to do. And when they say something that surprises me, I take it a lot more seriously than someone who I know always what they're going to say or someone who I think is trying to be contrarian for the sake of it, which I think is another branch of this. And yet, there's still that gentle nudge to be a bit more combative to make entertaining TV. So when I first started The Spectator, I was in my youth. Um, I got lots of requests to go on, you know, various TV things. I remember doing one paper review, I wouldn't say the channel, and in between takes I said, oh, you know you know, you can interrupt them more. You know you can interrupt, you know you, know you can raise your voice. I've had that as well, and being told that. I just, to be honest, I'm pretty stubborn in my own way, so I just then became the most boring person you could possibly imagine I think you want me to be this very strongly opinionated woman on the right which was never what I was trying to do 
I don't really talk about my political views in that, in that sense. So so I think initially at least, but then actually once you show <laughs> to Lee's producer, at least you're quite boring, that those um, requests tend to fall by the sidelines. Now, I'm going to burst the bubble on all this cosy pundit chat for a second with someone who is utterly unimpressed with pretty much the whole of British political culture. And that includes the journalists and the pundits, myself included, who shape the debate. This is James Schneider, who ran media for Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader of the Labour Party. The political punditry class is incredibly narrow. They live in this little bubble, tiny spectrum of opinion, very self-referential, pretty out of touch and removed. It's SW1 speaking to itself. It is pretty narcissistic, lots of egos, frames a lot of the political debate in a very personality-led way. It's like a really bad soap opera that most people, quite rightly, don't care about. Don't care about. Care about. Tell us what you really think, James. Pundits within you know, political broadcasting are in the drama production business. Most of politics coverage itself is in the drama production business. It's not really to do with finding out what's really going on or providing uh, real analysis of information. It's trying to create a, a drama out of, you know, generally speaking, not terribly interesting characters who are quite removed from most people. And the pundit class is the most uh, drama production end of it in in that you're meant to have these two people or four people or whatever who are meant to disagree in some way on, on, on TV or radio. As someone who literally hosts a podcast called Westminster Insider, I think it's quite important to hear James's criticism that in political journalism and Westminster in general, we're all a bit obsessed with ourselves. But what's interesting is the way, despite his scathing views on the pundit class, Schneider and the Corbynistas nevertheless felt obliged to use political punditry for their own ends. You'll obviously remember that Jeremy Corbyn famously didn't have the full backing of the Parliamentary Labour Party when he was leader, so there wasn't an army of media-savvy MPs ready and willing to take the fight onto the airwaves. So a certain group of young, left-wing pundits, some of them pretty new to TV, like Grace Blakely, Ash Sarkar and Owen Jones, played a crucial part in getting the message out. It's important and we work very hard to push to get left voices on on programmes, you know, on the basis that we got 13 million votes in 2017 or the policies that we're putting forward have, generally speaking, super majority support. Now, James says these pundits weren't robots. But they did work closely with Corbyn's team to share lines and coordinate their message. Parties have briefings teams that pull together lines and so on, which are used to brief politicians. And, you know, those lines might end up in the hands of people who are sort of broadly supportive, who, uh, who aren't politicians. And of course, there are a whole variety of means for communication, different messaging platforms, there's Google Docs, which you can uh, which you can share with people. There's all sorts of ways that people can can speak to each other before they do broadcast. You know, we were in a very funny position, which is that you know, we had the leadership of one of the two main parties, decent level of support in the polls for a, a substantial period, but we had very few people who would be allowed on the media to talk about those things or had experience on the media to talk about those things. And, you know, there you've got a kind of chicken and egg problem. And that's, you know, what you've got to do to try to put forward our message in a media environment, which is basically 
either hostile or sneering. For James, a lot of the battle to be heard happened before these commentators were even booked. And it comes back to that whiteboard and nuances that go beyond right and left or leave and remain. First of all, you've got to get people on, which is pretty difficult. I mean, I remember having plenty of conversations with producers and editors of of big programmes about, you know, the balance of the newspaper reviewers or the guests and so on. And, you know, whether you'd have people who are supportive and, you know, if Ian Austin is going on, that's not a Labour voice. You know, that doesn't count as in, in our... Uh, you know, in our in our balance of things. And for them, the editors and producers, they would hide behind the fact that, well, you know, your, you know, your supportive commentators don't have very much media experience. You say, well, yes, that's because you don't represent their positions. And the right wing has, you know, there's the blob and then there's the right wing. And the right wing has got its own um, well-developed ecosystem, well-developed, well-funded billionaire supporters, etc., to develop right-wing commentators. So the first of all is getting them on. Then when people are on, the thing to do is basically not engage with the game. You're there to show what the real power relations are. You know, you know, wages are going down because profits have gone up. You've got to try to cut through and make things simple and sometimes be antagonistic with the framing of the programme. That stuff on screen. Then stuff that's off screen, uh, you've got to you know, had to push hard against the way that certain panels would be set up. So let's say, for example, you've got a basically anti-Corbyn presenter. You've got an anti-Corbyn Labour or, you know, Labour right-associated guest. You've got uh, one left guest and you've got two Tory guests or Tory, you know, affiliated guests. Then basically you've got a 4v1 and you've got to, you know, push back hard and make clear that the structure of that debate, you know, has to take into account the fact that there's one person on, on one side and four voices on the other side, although that doesn't represent where public opinion is. So if you're trying to provide coverage which is uh, informing the public, then, you know, you're not doing your balance properly by having a token lefty on, for example. James Schneider surprised me by saying quite a few times when we spoke that a lot of the punditry on TV doesn't really matter. People only pay attention during elections, when broadcast rules are different anyway. And yet, he did work hard to get his people onto the airwaves, and he is frustrated by what he sees as the narrowness of the debate. And people on the right have their own gripes with all of this stuff, as do policy experts on how their specialist area is framed. And I think you'd rarely find a panel where every onlooker is completely happy. Because it must make a difference, even a tiny bit. Punditry and the shape of rounding panels on the BBC surely does play a part, some part, in contracting or expanding the Overton window, that scope of political options that people think are available to them. And so... There is a weight of responsibility on the shoulders of those producers to get it right. Ludicrous signing whiteboards and all. But let's finish this podcast where we started. What does the man who inspired this entire conversation actually make himself of this whole punditry business? It was a brief foray into punditry, which I'm guessing will be the end of my career in punditry. Uh... So um, I'm, I'm not sure I'm an expert. I suppose what I found interesting about it 
The thing that I worry about as a result of it and felt sad about, I suppose, is that I didn't... My intention was to not unravel the nature of those programmes and to uh, to derail Laura or to be impolite, really. My genuine re- real reason for going on that show was I was in the, a round of press to sell tickets for my tour. And so when you're offered a show like Laura Koonsberg's first show, there's going to be a lot of eyes on it. It would be daft when you're trying to do press to not go on that and create some you know puts people go oh I wonder what he's up to and sell some tickets basically and has it worked oh I sold so many more I sold a ridiculous <laughs> amount of tickets like it really spiked so yes so yes it worked so my 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 goal for being there at its most base level was successful I sold a lot of tickets so that was the main reason for going in and and when I was booked I did not know that I didn't know anyone else was going to be on the show I knew it would be probably some political heavyweights but at the time I my guess was that Liz and Rishi wouldn't go on it because they weren't doing a lot and so I didn't think I'd be up in front of people like that so I wasn't um I wasn't really prepped for that and it only was told to me I think the day before or maybe two days before that I was going to be on with them and um and then did that make you think a bit differently when you thought the person who's going to be the next prime minister is on with me yes yeah it did absolutely and I panicked really I got a bit scared because I felt a weight of responsibility in that there are so many things and uh, that I would like to say to those people and I've never met a prime minister before or since uh a former or current one uh I've met very few MPs I'm uh friends with Jess Phillips uh, Phillips because she lives around the corner from me in Birmingham. Uh, I've met some MPs because of her, but very few Tory MPs, if any, I think. I, yeah, I, I can't, you know, I'm never around those sorts of people, so it's not my world. Uh, but I'm interested in politics. I follow politics. And I'm personally affronted by the way that they've behaved in office. So I'm cross about them. And I know people that I'm friends with and lots of people in the country are also cross with the way that they behaved during Partygate, particularly and the lying around uh, all of that. And then on the drive in in the morning, I, I thought I'm not a political pundit. That's not what I do. I've never done this before. And uh, I just didn't feel like that was honest of me in in the weird way to go on and say, well, this is what I think. And I also didn't think it was funny. And I'm a comedian, so my I'm always, there's always an eye on like how to make this funny. And one thing that I have done consistently over the last five years is send sarcastic tweets to people I think are bastards. So Trump, Boris, Nadine Dorries. Lots you of people. You send her tweets calling her babe and things. Yes, yeah. and just <laughs> b- pretend that they're my best friends and like oh, come around for a wine and like just silly, sarcastic tweets. And people love that on Twitter, and it undermines them in a kind of fun, light way. And I thought, well, that's that's the way to play it. So I didn't have any pre-planned lines. I was going to describe. Um, Liz Truss is like the new Thatcher and that Thatcher got rid of the wokey miners. I was going to, uh, I was really pleased with that when I thought of that, but I didn't manage to get it out on the show. But essentially just thought it'd be fun to play that role, essentially. And so that's what I did. And I think but, the but Guardian... But just, just in the car over. Just on the drive there, yeah. I didn't think, oh, well, this will unravel punditry and there'll be discussions about the nature of punditry and Laura Koonsberg will be on the ropes. I didn't think any of that. I thought she'd probably just go like, oh, silly Joe, and we'd move on. 
and uh, I didn't expect any of that and that was not my intention. My intention was to just be like a sarky idiot, basically, on which, like, like any student in a school, basically be like annoying in class, essentially. And I suppose Laura is the teacher in that scenario, so she's probably annoyed that the lesson plan's not gone the way she wanted it to, maybe. But that was never, you know, I was always very respectful of the teachers at school. And she was very nice afterwards and said, oh, we'd love to have you back on. But that was before the kind of Twitter and the Daily Mail front page and all that. So I think things changed. And I'm sure internally at the BBC, they've discussed it. And and then obviously Steve Bryan said that. I mean, he's like David Brent as an MP, isn't he? Um, Steve Bryan talked about me in uh, the select committee and said that they shouldn't have booked me. How about a conversation that goes on before output where somebody says, you know what, new show, new start, new term, let's not book, let's not book Joe, because we know what Joe's going to deliver. You see, somebody who's ungenerous to the BBC could say, you know exactly what Joe is going to deliver, and that's why you booked him. Which is nice to hear from Steve Bryan, who voted against gay marriage. Thanks for that, Steve. Um, so I uh, I had uh, a sense of um, guilt about that. I felt I, I felt sad about if I'd upset Laura. In a, she didn't she didn't say this in any way, and she's been nothing but gracious and lovely about me. So, um, but I yeah I, I would I'm very happy to be on the record that that was not my intention. But I think it is interesting how people then did respond to it in that way and go, what is the nature of these shows? What is the value of these shows? What is the point of having a politician on a TV programme if they are then just allowing allowed to use that as a way of not really saying anything and just sort of um, getting away with business as usual? But I don't think Laura does that. People also took it as this big sort of postmodern meta commentary on yeah, yeah. on what on what we do in this. Obviously, world. I love that because yeah. that makes me think I'm far more intelligent than I am. But I'm you're like, a genius. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, I'm like some sort of yeah. But do you kind of actually agree with that analysis? Yeah. The way you prompted everyone to think, hang on, is this all? Is this all kind of nonsense? Mm. Like, if it hadn't been Joe Lysett there and it had been a terribly serious political journalist, mm. they wouldn't have said anything that useful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those are your words, not mine. Um, are you kind of... Is that kind of... Even if that wasn't literally what you were thinking that second, do you broadly think that that's what... Punditry what, is. What punditry is? No. No? No, I don't. Uh, I just don't think it's... That's not what I do. So I'm. that's not my job and I think there's some brilliant um, uh, political pundits who you know I watch Laura's show I watch Newsnight I watch political stuff and what I want from my pundits is someone with knowledge around a certain area to then after particularly in the way that Laura's constructed the show and her team it's like you have a politician on that has a kind of grilling and then it's a bit of breathing space for Laura to go so the answer that they gave there about the economy, we go to someone who's an expert on the economy and has done studies in this. How would that actually affect it, in your opinion? And that, I want to know that. It's incredibly valuable and very important. And that's why I was sort of thought it was weird that I'd been booked, because all I can add is being weird in a chair. So after all that, Joe Lysett has managed to agree with both his fans and his critics on the value or otherwise of his Laura Kay appearance. Like Rob Burley, he actually does express a tiny bit of scepticism about why he was booked. And he cheerfully says that he didn't plan it as a genius deconstruction of the punditry class. 
And yet, I think he's pleased that he creatively voiced a criticism of Liz Truss giving an interview with very little detail about her plans. Were you in the green room with Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak beforehand? No, they wouldn't no. let me near them, which I thought was interesting. Uh, now, I was in the green room with some of the lovely production team, who were all very nice, and uh, Cleo Watson, and uh, then later Emily Thornbury came in as well. And I was asked at one point to go through and have makeup. And as I was walking through to makeup, someone said, Oh, Liz Truss is in makeup. And I said, Oh, great. I'd love to speak to her. And then I was beckoned very quickly back into the green room. And so I never got close to Liz Truss. I never spoke to her, never said anything. Likewise with with Rishi. Although I did get closer to him because he stuck around afterwards. But I. For that fat, funny BBC Canteen for Breakfast. For the BBC Canteen Breakfast. But by that point, I, um, I was scared of him. I'm scared of him because. Uh, I um, or scared of what my reaction would be to him because um, he was I think complicit in all that line you know so um, uh, I didn't want to look him in the eye because I didn't uh, I was still angry I suppose so I didn't know I didn't I didn't trust myself to not do something mad so I just sat and ate my porridge and fucked off <laughs> that was it really and Joe has plenty of thoughts about the strangeness of the Westminster system. So I don't want to be in too in it because I don't want to be contaminated by it, I think. There's a little bit of that going on. And um, that's one thing that I've sort of done throughout my career is I've just sort of try not to get too... I don't go to events. I'm not too... I mean, I'm not show busy. I, like, I don't like going to awards ceremonies and things like that. I like to be in my house in Birmingham or in the nearby pub most of the time. I'm not someone who likes celeb stuff. And so I think if you get too into that world, it can make you not a real person. And I think if you get too much into politics, it makes you not a real person. You sort of start playing a game, really. And yeah, I'd, no I'd, one I'd, in I'd never politics want to... is a real person. No. I'd say. Yeah. Very few of them. Do you actually, you actually agree? Yeah, oh, yeah I, sorry, no, yeah. no, I genuinely agree. I thought agree. you might be being sarcastic. Look, no, 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 politics, it, it makes everyone a it little bit like weird. It makes like sort of lizard people, yeah. <laughs> There's an old interview that Noam Chomsky did. God, who thinks he's a bloody big dick over here, Joe likes it. Uh, with Andrew Marr years ago, and Andrew's very young in it. And Noam essentially says that the fact that Andrew is in the position he's in as an interviewer at the BBC or wherever it is that he was, by its very nature, means that he adheres to certain rules and and behaves in certain ways that the establishment and the system... And we could get very, like, the system. But, like, the, essentially, that you know, in order for Laura to be where she is, she has to play the game and, and has to be an insider and has to garner the respect of these people and just by that the very nature of that I suppose that slightly compromises her I think that's the very that's the nature of the job that she's or, in or, or, or all of us really oh, exactly yeah. yeah so you know you won't get access unless they know that you're only going to push in a certain amount in a certain way and I would be very surprised if I'm booked back on that show again because I didn't behave in the way that you're expected to, I suppose, on those programmes. So I'm not behaving the way the system would like me to. You won't be back on as part of the system. I can't help but wonder if sometimes we maybe just need a Westminster outsider to make us all think about what we do and the responsibility we have to shake things up a bit. 
But the consensus, though, in politics is often wrong, right? Yeah. I mean, it's often it's often wrong, and we often don't know what is going to pan out. Yeah. Well, as as Liz said there, she said she would be wrong to predict the future, even though loads of people have predicted that we're going to have real issues with paying our energy bills. But um, you know, I think she's right to just then just sort of basically say, well, let's not predict and see what happens next week. I okay. think she did the right thing there. listening to the Westminster Insider with me, Alva Ray. If you've enjoyed it, please spread the word. Follow us and maybe leave us a nice review. Where do you, where do you follow? At Politico? At Westminster Insider? Well, it's like follow wherever you get your podcast. Oh, I you see. Know, sort of it's a Spotify, Apple. Spotify, Apple. Audible? Audible. Acast. Uh, Acast. iTunes. iTunes. I, no, it'd be podcasts. It'd be with a podcast app, Apple, wouldn't it? Apple, Yeah. Google Google Pods. Exactly. Wherever you get them, follow us, please, for God's sake. Thank you to my guest this week. James Graham's new play, Best of Enemies, is running in the West until February. I must go. And Joe Lysett's stand-up show, More, 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 How Do You Lice It, How Do You Lice It, which is, in my personal opinion, the greatest work of all time, is available to watch on joelysett.com. My producer was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, a fine establishment. They do a nice coffee. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my editor is Jack Blanchard. We'll be back next week. See you then. Stay safe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.